Hey, if you need new sunglasses, if you would like to get new sunglasses, know that Shady Rays, for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, is offering a fantastic deal. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use this promo code Al Galdi. Shady Rays sunglasses, they are the best. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Go to ShadyRays.com and use that code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use that code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. And away we go. Episode 558 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 26th. 2023, the day after the Nationals' best win of their 2023 season so far. Hey, they're probably not going to have many wins, okay? So we need to savor those wins that the team does have. But a 5 nothing win at the New York Mets on Tuesday night in a game in which three of the team's acquisitions from the massive sell-off prior to the 2021 MLB trade deadline came through. Starting pitcher Josiah Gray, six scoreless innings with nine strikeouts. Reliever Mason Thompson, three scoreless innings with four strikeouts. And catcher Kbert Ruiz, three for four with a solo homer, two singles, and a walk. All three of those guys acquired via the 2021 fire sale. All three delivered on Tuesday night. As Nats manager Davey Martinez would say, we are proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. <laughs> That's right, Davey. Proud of the boys. Hey, when you're a rebuilding team as the Nats are, this is what you're looking for. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. The first round of the 2023 NFL Draft is on Thursday night. You know, the time for talking is nearly done. The time for mocking, as in mock drafting, is nearly done. We need to get focused. We need to get serious. And so, next segment, we will examine the many possibilities in terms of who the commanders realistically may take with their number 16 overall pick on Thursday night as a welcome on NFL Draft analyst Ryan Roberts. He is one of the hosts of the first team NFL Draft and College Football Show podcast. Ryan also writes for irishbreakdown.com, which covers Notre Dame football. Ryan knows his stuff, as you will hear. The NFL draft is what he does, and we are going to cover it all. You will hear Ryan address what the commanders have in Sam Howell, where Sam would rank in this year's draft quarterback class, uh, whether any of the perceived top four quarterbacks in the draft might fall to the Commanders at 16. What the Commanders should be thinking about Tennessee quarterback Hendon Hooker. And 
in-depth analysis of the offensive linemen, tight ends, corners, and edge defenders in the first round and beyond. Those are the four position groups coming up the most for the commanders at 16. Well, you by the end of our chat with Ryan will be well-versed in what's what and who's who. NFL draft analyst Ryan Roberts, next segment. Uh, Also on the show, I will properly commemorate the Nats' great win on Tuesday night and their big win on Tuesday morning. You see, Tuesday night, the Nats won at the Mets, but Tuesday morning, we found out about a key Nats victory in the Masson dispute. Yeah, the most drawn-out thing ever, the Masson dispute, which started in 2012. Here we are in 2023, and this darn thing is still going on. Are we maybe, possibly, finally, nearing an end to the Masson dispute? And I will talk Orioles. Uh, their seven-game winning streak did end. Uh, an 8-6 loss to the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Tuesday evening as starting pitcher Kyle Bradish got shellacked, although the O's did rally. Uh, the O's scored five runs in the bottom of the ninth, trimming an 8-1 deficit to 8-6. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Sakani on Commander's Bitter Brian Davis, the former Duke basketball player, the former NBA player, the former part owner of DC United, uh, the man with the super shady business past who is insisting that he has a $7 billion cash offer to buy the Commanders. I know that I said that I didn't want to talk more about Brian Davis, and I don't, but uh, there is an entertainment value with this guy. Uh, right, Sakani. Hello, Al. I think of Bernie Madoff <laughs> when I hear about Brian Davis. I hope this sale ends soon so that we as fans can focus on the draft in the upcoming season. The team needs a brand new front office and coaching staff. And for those of you who want Jim Harbaugh, tempting option, but the team needs a young, innovative, offensive-minded head coach. Great podcast, Al. Thank you for that, Sakani. Uh, I am with you, my friend. I hope that the sale ends soon. Uh, As we discussed on Tuesday's show, episode 556, NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB in a column that came out on Monday did note that the sale being finalized by June 1st is a distinct possibility. Uh, That would be lovely. Uh, And yeah, generally speaking, the way of the current NFL with head coaches is guys who are young and have offensive backgrounds. That's the thing with our guy, Ron Rivera. Uh, The commanders in Ron have someone who is older and has a defensive background. Now, those two things in and of themselves don't mean that Ron can't have success, but the team with a head coach who fits that description is very much going against the way of the current NFL. I mean, look at the teams that played in the divisional round of this past postseason. Seven of the eight head coaches had primarily offensive backgrounds. The New York Giants, Brian Dable, the Philadelphia Eagles, Nick Sirianni, the Dallas Cowboys, Mike McCarthy, the San Francisco 49ers, Kyle Shanahan, the Jacksonville Jaguars, Doug Peterson, the Kansas City Chiefs, Andy Reid, the Cincinnati Bengals, Zach Taylor, the only head coach who had primarily a defensive background, the Buffalo Bills, Sean McDermott, who of course was Ron's defensive coordinator during Ron's time as Carolina Panthers head coach. Email from Harry Kalashian on the commanders under new ownership potentially changing their name. Yes, another name change, uh, writes Harry. Hi, Al. Love the podcast. Love the insights. Love the voice. Uh, Well, thank you for that, Harry, Uh, who, by the way, with the initials HK, 
has the same initials of someone who had maybe the single greatest voice in the history of voices, legendary broadcaster Harry Callis. Anyway, continues this Harry K. Uh, I've been a daily listener since episode one, and I'm happy to let you know that your reach includes Paris, France, from where I write you now. Paris is a nice place, but there will be no parade here when our dream of a new owner becomes reality. Anyway, I'm sure you've noticed that the second biggest response to the big news has been a call for new branding. There's a simple reason for why new branding is the way to go, and you have covered plenty of reasons for why new branding may not be likely. But I have an idea that could satisfy both sides. It would be only a slight change from Washington commanders. What about the Washington football commanders. Before you crucify me for doubling the length of the name, the idea would be to brand the team as Washington FC. That gives the bring back WFT fans something while also keeping a distinctive mascot in place. What do you think? Do I have a case? (laughs) Thank you for the email, Harry. Well, uh, I was fine with Washington football team as a placeholder name. I was never fine with Washington football team as a permanent name because uh, it's not a name. I mean, I was never a fan of going with a soccer name like Washington FC. So a new name of Washington football commanders uh, would not be placating me, would not be appealing to me. You know, I have never understood <laughs> this desire to soccerize the team's name. Uh, what is that about? Like, where does that come from? Uh, I have nothing against soccer, but soccer is soccer. The NFL is the NFL. Why should an NFL team try to have a soccer team-like name? Uh, But listen, there are people on Harry's side. My good friend, my pal, Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. He was just on this podcast a few weeks ago, episode 551, and he would like to see the team rebrand to something along the lines of Washington FC. The issue of the team changing its name again, obviously, is coming up a lot. It is a tricky issue because, yes, a lot of people do not like Commanders, even though personally, I don't think that Commanders is as terrible as some make it out to be. But is it really in the best interest of the team to undergo yet another identity change of having had three names since the summer of 2020. And the reality is that there is no perfect new name. People are going to have a problem with whatever the team's name is. And so to me, there's something to be said for sticking with a name that is at least okay, which to me, Commanders is, and then hopefully doing well as a team. Imagine that uh, to where people eventually associate the new name with winning and good feeling. Uh, But obviously, we are a ways away from that point right now. And yes, my friend Harry, you do have a case. And if you have a case of a different kind, uh, you, of course, should contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. By the way, a big congratulations to Chris Nace. He was just named the 2023 Barry J. Nace Trial Lawyer of the Year. 
dismissed by the D.C. Trial Lawyers Association. Paulson and Ace fights for victims of all kinds of situations, including victims of errors made during diagnosis, during surgery, or with medication, victims of injuries caused by dangerous medications or medical devices, as well as defective auto parts, victims of accidents involving cars, trucks, bikes, or motorcycles, victims of deceptive trade practices and false advertising, Heck, victims of shady lawyers. If your attorney acts in bad faith, is unethical in his or her counsel, or is negligent in his or her work, you could have a claim for legal malpractice. Paulson and Nace has represented corporate clients throughout the region. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. A big help is if you subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast via most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. A subscription to the pod costs you nothing and make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, you on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two. Can be more, but doesn't have to be. And thank you for subscribing, rating, and and reviewing. There are many ways in which our commanders could go with their number 16 overall pick in the 2023 NFL Draft's first round, which is this Thursday night. Uh, Trading down is what I most want the team to do, but if the team stays at 16, who might the team take? Who should the team take? I'm very pleased to welcome to the Yao Galdi podcast NFL Draft analyst Ryan Roberts. He is one of the hosts of the first team NFL Draft and College Football Show podcast. Uh, also, Ryan writes for IrishBreakdown.com, which covers Notre Dame football. You can follow Ryan on Twitter at RiseInDraft, and that's Rise, the letter N, and then Draft. Rise in Draft. Uh, hey, Ryan. Happy NFL Draft Week. How are you? I'm good, Al. I'm good, man. I appreciate the flexibility with getting me on here. I know it's been a crazy couple of weeks for me especially, but uh, it's, uh, it's the best time of the year, man. Finally got to get all the work done and just kind of sit back and just watch the chaos ensue now, man. So it's good times of the year. For someone like you who is, you know, neck deep in NFL draft coverage throughout the year, are you during draft week just sick of the whole thing and wanting to get it over with? Or... Is this week like Christmas for you? It's like Christmas, honestly. It's one of those things where I always get um, evaluations and everything finalized usually a couple weeks ahead of time. So it's really this week is about watching people all just freak out with every single betting odd flipping one way or the other and people you know, having the overreactions. It's, I mean, this is the core of what I grew up loving, right? Like, I love just kind of sitting down, watching the draft, and being able to evaluate team fits and all that great stuff. So, the work's done, man. Now I just get to see where all these guys are going to go and, you know, just kind of evaluate kind of the future of some of these NFL teams, which is always fun. All right. Well, before we talk about specific players, I'm curious about this. Uh, The perpetual question of NFL teams drafting for need versus drafting the best players available. What do you think is the right way for an NFL team to approach the draft? 
it's it's a very nuanced question because I I don't think that there's a one size fits all answer to that question. I, I think in a vacuum, it's always best to draft the best player available. Like I, I truly do, right? Because the value of drafting the best player available for me is the sense of like I am always going to replenish my roster and there's never going to be any question about my process as much. I think there's a lot more questions of your process when you try to four square pegs in the route hole sometimes or vice versa. So I am always a fan of drafting for need, but like a, a team like the, let, let's say the Kansas city chiefs just won a super bowl, right? Like they have a little bit of luxury to how they can pick compared to what the Houston Texans are right now with how many holes are in their roster. So I think it really depends on what the situation, but relatively I'm usually a pick the best player available. Cause that's the best way to replenish talent in my opinion. Uh, quarterback, the commanders are positioning Sam Howell to be their QB1 for the 2023 season, though at least according to head coach Ron Rivera, Sam will be competing with Jacoby Brissett for that starting quarterback job. But I'm interested in your opinion on Sam. What do you think of him as an NFL quarterback? I actually like Sam a lot better than where he got drafted last year, man. I was actually kind of surprised and a little bit shocked when he lasted in the fifth round. I really thought he was a clear day two player in last year's class, especially because Last year, quarterback class was not very good, man. I mean, the first quarterback to go off the board is Kenny Pickett at 20. I wasn't a huge fan of Kenny. Malik doesn't go to – Malik Wilson doesn't go to the third round. Sam doesn't go to the fifth round. It was just a really weird year of quarterback evaluation. I actually ended up having a late two, early third round grade on Sam Howell. I, I liked him, man. I, I, I didn't think that he was a kid that – Year one should be pressed into a lot of duty, but I thought year two, year three, there's a lot of developmental upside. I mean, he's got a live arm, pretty compact deliveries, a pretty solid and good athlete overall. I mean, especially his last year in North Carolina, he really took a step up from the ability to work outside of structure and create some things with his legs. So there's, you know, there was some inconsistencies with him. I, I felt like he was doing a little bit too much his last year at North Carolina because some out of necessity, some he was just pressing a little bit too hard, but he has clear talent. Like there's no question about it. So I think that he has starter upside on the NFL level. I was always on the I was always on the point of year one is not Sam Howell. Year two, year three, year four, that's when you're gonna really start getting the best out of him. So still a young guy. I, I think that he has a chance to be a starter in the NFL. It's just about what you put around him and the development of obviously the coaching staff. If Sam Howell was in this 2023 draft, where would you have him ranked among the quarterbacks? That's a great question. I actually, (laughs) people are going to find this a little bit of a hot take, I guess, but I would probably have him just for, I mean, yeah, he would be my quarterback four in this class. I would actually have him over Will Levis. I would. I only have a, I have a clear third round grade on Will Levis. He scares the bejesus out of me, man. I'm not a big Will Levis fan at all. I think that Sam has a clearer pathway to being a good quarterback in the NFL. I think his floor is substantially higher. So he would be quarterback four in this class for me. I think that there's a clear one, two in this class from the evaluation side of things. And then you're, you know, obviously the wild card is Anthony Richardson in there along with Will Levis. But I really think there's a steep drop from quarterback one and two to three, four and five. And I think that Sam would fit right in there, probably quarterback four for me. Uh, The Commanders have the number 16 overall pick in Thursday night's first round. You mentioned Florida quarterback Anthony Richardson and Kentucky quarterback Will Levis. Uh, Let's throw Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud into the mix. Uh, Do you think that there's any realistic chance that any of those guys fall to 16? I think they'll all be gone. I think we're going to see four quarterbacks pretty early in this draft. I mean, it's going to be chaos because I I know that there's some – conversations about you know some of the books betting odds are kind of going all over the place with Will Levis but I still think that it, that Bryce Young is gonna be the first overall selection of the Carolina Panthers 
after that, man, like I really do think that Will Levis might be the second quarterback off the board, which is just bananas to think about, <laughs> but it's possible. But either way, I don't think C.J. Stroud gets out of the top 10, and I think at worst, if Anthony Richardson is there, 8, 9, 10, somewhere in that ballpark, like the Philadelphia Eagles have the 10th overall selection, and for me, like that's a tradeback candidate for me right there. It's like if Anthony Richardson's there at 10, a team will probably trade up, whether it, you know it's the – you know, I mean, whether it's just one pick in Tennessee, make sure that someone doesn't jump in front of them and they get up to just number 10 and take a guy like an Anthony Richardson. I, I think that they will all be gone by pick 16. So I don't think that Washington will really have that internal debate of whether, you know, it's too good to pass up, even if though they have Sam Howell in the building. The commanders reportedly have brought in just one quarterback for a top 30 visit this NFL draft season. Uh, that quarterback is Tennessee's Hendon Hooker. What's your opinion of Hooker? I think he's a really good day two quarterback in this class. And I mean, similarly to how I felt about Sam to a degree, I mean, they're not nearly the same player. So like, I'm not copying the players from a play style perspective, but Hennon Hooker is a clear second to third round pick in my opinion, because there are some limitations that you need to talk about, right? One is 25 years old, going to be 26 years old as a rookie. That's, a smaller window of development potentially for a guy like a Hendon Hooker. Like you can't deny that Two is he's coming off the ACL injury. You know, ACLs aren't the biggest thing in the world anymore. It really doesn't matter that much in today's game. But then number three is also you're coming out of a Josh Heupel offense, which is gimmicky. It's very collegey, right? But there are a lot of really good things that Hendon does. I mean, he hits the height, weight, size, you know, attributes that you want. He's a good athlete. And he's one of the best deep ball passers in this class. So he's a little bit scheme specific. And I think that the ceiling is a little bit cut off just because of the age and everything. But I think that he has potential to be a Ryan Tannehill-esque type of NFL quarterback. You know, like he's going to be a good player, potentially very good with things right around him. But I do think that there are some questions of like, is he ever going to be an elevator at the next level? And I'm just not sure if he's that. We are previewing the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft from a commander's perspective with NFL Draft analyst Ryan Roberts. A lot of talk about the commanders with their number 16 overall pick potentially taking an offensive lineman. Uh, guys who've come up for the commanders at 16 include Tennessee offensive tackle Darnell Wright, Georgia offensive tackle Broderick Jones, Ohio State offensive tackle Paris Johnson Jr., Northwestern offensive tackle Peter Skoronsky. Who out of the offensive linemen would you like for the commanders at 16? I think with where they are at 16, I think the guy that you really hope is there, because I just don't think Peter Skorowski is going to be there. I don't also, I think Paris Johnson Jr. is not going to be there as well. I mean, you start talking about the Las Vegas Raiders at seven, and then the Chicago Bears at nine is a clearly clear need. I wouldn't discount the Philadelphia Eagles taking Peter Skronsky at 10 to fit in a right guard to be the heir apparent to Lane Johnson either, right? Like So like, there's some offensive tackle the heavy-needed teams in front of Washington. I think that the dream scenario is Broderick Jones is sitting there at 16, man. I really do. He's a He's the ball of clay a little bit. He's not a finished product. He's, I mean, we forget that he's only a redshirt sophomore this year, and he was really only a one-year starter. Like, he started some as a redshirt freshman in 2021, but 2022 was his first true year as a starter. He's got the length. He's got the, the attributes from a foot quickness perspective, good flexibility. He has the best base in this class, too, man. Like, he never gets a narrow base. He maintains a power position at all times, and he has just some insane raw power to his game. But he's not a finished product, obviously, right? Like his his feet need to be a little bit more advantageous against contact occasionally. I think that his power profile is still very good, but it's developing. And I think he's just 
learning the nuances of how to play the offensive tackle position. But if I'm Washington and he's sitting there at 16, I'm like, that is a toolsy kid that three years from now, you might say that was that kid was a top 10 talent in the NFL draft. There's no doubt. It's just he's not quite as advanced as a guy like a Peter Skorowski, for instance. But I wouldn't be shocked if three years from now, again, if you look back and say, Roger Jones ends up being the best offensive tackle in that class because he might have had the highest upside. It's just about, obviously, the development on his side. Darnell Wright has been linked to the commanders quite a bit. Where are you on him? I like Darnell for what he is. I feel like he's getting slightly overhyped in this class. Like He's a clear late first round, early second round player for me. I think 16 is a little bit too high, just in my opinion, just a little bit, because I don't think that he's a perfect offensive tackle prospect. The things I love about him, he's a massive kid. 330 plus pounds, 6'5", he's got good length, he checks all those boxes from a size profile perspective. His hand nuance is fantastic, man. He's got some of the better mitts in this in this class, both powerful and the understanding of aiming points and how to kind of set guys up. He does a tremendous job with that. I don't think he's the best athlete of all time. I think he's a solid athlete, but I don't think flexibility is amazing. So I think that some outside track rushers, some real true speed guys, will be able to give him fits at times. But if he's able to play in tight quarters... I think he's a really good football player. I just think he would be a better guard than tackle, but I do think he could play tackle at the next level. But I just think 16 is slightly too high for me. I think that it's possible that it happens just because of we know every single year offensive tackles are valued so heavily in the draft. So there's guys that are going to be pushed up a little bit, so it could happen. But 16 is just a little bit too high to me just because I just don't see flexible athlete. I don't see he's a right tackle only and maybe a preferred guard long term. Like that's kind of what I see with Darnell. The commander's potentially going tight end in the first round of the draft has come up. It's interesting with tight end because so many good tight ends have been guys who were non-first round picks in NFL drafts. Is tight end a position, maybe like running back, maybe like linebacker, that a team should not address in the first round of a draft? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can you can look at, I mean, like you said, there's a little bit of a track record, right? I mean, George Kittle was a fourth round pick. Mark Andrews was a third round pick. Darren Waller was a former you know, college wide receiver converted to a tight end. I mean, there is a long track record. I mean, Travis Kelsey was what a fifth round pick coming out of university tonight, fourth round pick. I mean, so there is a track record to say you can wait and you can kind of find the tools. You guys, I think the reason for that honestly is a lot of college teams are just not great at developing tight ends. You know, like there's a lot of guys that come into the league and I feel like there's a lot of work to be done. And maybe that has something to do with Teams going more to a spread look, maybe not using as much, you know, 11 and 12 personnel as they once did, you know, you know, just five, 10 years ago at this point. But I do think there's some value, especially, I mean, in this class, like I'm a big Michael Mayer fan of the first round, right? Like I love Michael Mayer out of Notre Dame. I think that there's some validity to loving Darnell Washington and to loving a guy like a Dalton Kincaid. But when you look down the board further, I mean, if you're starting to get into the territory of like, do I want to bet on a Luke Musgrave in the day two? Do I want to bet on a Tucker Craft out of South Dakota State on day two? I think there's some validity to that conversation because what you're going to see is that there's going to be some really athletic tight ends who are not near finished products. You know, I mentioned Luke Musgrave. You mentioned Zach Koontz, who just absolutely dominated the dominated the combine coming out of Old Dominion, former five-star recruit that was at Penn State originally. You look at those types of guys, and again, as long as they're developed properly and they get in with the good coaching staff, they have the chance to be really good producers. So I think in this class especially, very deep class. I mean, Brenton Strange and some of these other guys, man, kind of further down the board, I think they can be good to key NFL contributors You know, down the line. It's just about, again, they're not finished products. They're not going to get day one contributions that a Michael Mayer will give you, you know, c- kind of in comparison. But third, fourth year down the line, 
it wouldn't shock me if a couple of these late round guys end up being one of the better tight ends in this class because I do think this is a very deep class in 2023. Got to get your take on corner. Uh, the consensus top two corners in this 2023 draft certainly appear to be Oregon's Kristen Gonzalez and Illinois' Devin Witherspoon. Uh, each would seem to be quite likely to be gone by the time the commander's number 16 overall pick comes up. But out of the perceived next four best corners in the draft, Maryland's Deontay Banks, Penn State's Joey Porter Jr., Mississippi State's Emmanuel Forbes, and South Carolina's Cam Smith. Who do you like the most? Man, I'll tell you what, I I, I love Emmanuel Forbes' films. Just he's 166 pounds out of Mississippi State, man. Like it, this is the the weird time of year, Al, because like you're you're talking about betting on outliers a lot this time of year, right? Because there's gonna be some guys, I mean, whether it's Emmanuel Forbes with the weight, whether it's Kalijah Cansey with the arm length and the height, whether it's Clark Phillips with the size that he has at corner. There are some guys this year, the Deuce Vaughn at running back out of Kansas State, there's guys this year that are outliers. And I feel like we really hyper-focus on the word outlier, and it's like this crazy negative word, right? But outliers aren't a bad thing, in my opinion, right? That just means that the deck is stacked against you. History tells you that that guy most likely is going to be a great player. But what do we love more than anything to root for? It's the guys that, you know, get past those perceived, you know, ceilings that they can't be this guy. Devonta Smith, for instance, right? Like you can't play wide receiver in the NFL level at that weight. And then he proves you wrong. So Emmanuel Forbes, all that to say is like, I think that his coverage skills are one of the top two to three corners in this class, just from pure ability to play off man, to play zone, instinctually change of direction ability to turn and run. I mean, ran four, three, five at the combine. I know some people were like, he ran four, three, five at 166 pounds. And I'm like, okay, so you put 10 pounds on him and he's a four, four flat guy. Like he's still really fast. Right. So I think that Emmanuel force for me is incredibly twitchy, incredibly, you know, coverage versatile, but I really like him for what he is, man. I think that he is a player that has all the upside as a coverage player. It's just, there might be some limitations from a physical perspective that you're going to have to be okay with. There's going to be some teams that aren't. And then Deontay Banks is another one of those guys where different conversation in the sense that he's six foot, 190 pounds. He fits the profile, 32 plus inch arms. He looks the part. He is a player that I think is a little bit raw in some areas, but man, another guy that we were talking about, height, weight, speed, ability to change direction, length. He kind of checks all the boxes physically, man. So there might be, I think there is going to be a little bit of a maturation process with the Deontay Banks in year one. I think that there's going to be, you know, a couple struggles early, but he reminds me a whole lot of Xavier Howard when he was coming out of Baylor. Like this is one of those kids that I feel like is going to force a lot of turnovers. He's going to be one of the better corners in the NFL year three, four, five, because I think he has the type of athletic upside. It's just about outweighing for me, the long-term versus the short-term with a guy like Deontay Banks. The commanders are in an odd place right now at edge defender. Uh, Their top two edge defenders, Montez Sweat and Chase Young, each could be in a contract season in 2023, depending on whether the team this offseason signs Montez to a contract extension and exercises the fifth-year option in Chase's rookie contract. What do you think about the edge defenders in the 2023 draft? And would any make sense for the commanders at 16? It's, it's a good class. It, it's actually, I mean, it's really deep class, right? And I, I think that's one thing for me where I was very high on Chase Young. I think if he's able to stay healthy, I think he's still going to be an excellent football player. And Monte Sweat, I know Monte Sweat has been a pretty good player, obviously, for the, for the commanders as well. I, I think for me, I don't know if I would necessarily say that's a pick that I would make at 16 just because 
I'm just like thinking through my mind of like the players that are going to be on the board because I really like a lot of the talent on the board. I mean, Tyree Wilson and Will Anderson Jr. are both going to be a top 10 pick, so not going to be in the conversation. But if a Miles Murphy from Clemson, for instance, is staring you at 16, it would be tempting for me. It really would be. But I think from where the commanders are right now, I think there's more pressing needs. And the great thing is that when you get into the day two conversation of this draft, there's still going to be guys that are going to be there, man. Like I think like uh, um, Felix Anaduke Ozoma out of Kansas State. Will McDonald, I think, probably goes in the first round, but like I wouldn't be shocked if he falls to the second just because of some size limitations. Derek Hall, the second out of Auburn's a really talented power rusher that I like in the day two range. So for me, with where Washington is, even with both guys in a perceived contract year, I think that you bet on one of those guys taking a step forward and then there being a future, and then maybe you get a day two acquisition to the position and kind of continue to build that way because I do think that the depth of the edge class this year is very good. Yeah, you know, from what you're saying about offensive tackle and tight end and corner and edge defender, sounds like there's a good bit of depth at all of those positions. And so the commanders trading down in the first round could very much be in play. NFL draft analyst Ryan Roberts, uh, one of the hosts of the first team NFL draft and college football show podcast. Ryan also writes for irishbreakdown.com, which covers Notre Dame football. Ryan, great stuff. Thanks a lot. Absolutely, brother. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, if the commanders do end up trading back in the first round of the 2023 draft, they hopefully will do so via a great deal for them. But, you know, however good that deal is, it'll have a hard time being as good as the deal that Shady Rays (laughs) is offering to listeners of this podcast. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the promo code ALGALDI. Shady Rays sunglasses, they look good, they feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. You can wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. And so take advantage of the special offer for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yes, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. And get this, if you don't love your sunglasses, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Also, Shady Rays has donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Shady Rays look good and feel good. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, we on Tuesday only had one actual Nationals game, and yet we had two Nats victories. Coming up, I will address the Nats' big win in the Masson dispute, but my friends, we have a Nats shutout win to discuss. A 5-0 win at the New York Mets on Tuesday night in game one of a three-game series. Meet the Mets, beat the Mets. <laughs> That's what the Nats did on Tuesday night. Nats now are 8-14. and 14. So. The Nats over Josiah Gray's first four starts in this regular season basically did not score. Amazingly had totaled a mere one run. That was it. The Nats on Tuesday night scored five runs and Gray more than held up his end of the bargain. Josiah Gray on Tuesday night was great. Six scoreless innings with nine strikeouts. He gave up just four hits, a double, and three singles. He issued just one walk. He threw 91 pitches, 60 strikes versus 31 balls. Gray per stat cast had a healthy mix of four pitches, a four-seam fastball, which he threw on 45% of his pitches, a slider, which he threw on 23% of his pitches, a curveball, which he threw on 16% of his pitches, and a cutter, which he threw on 15% of his pitches. Uh, Gray seemingly had everything working, and he was dominant. Like I said, six shutout innings with nine strikeouts. Gray twice over the first four innings generated swinging strikeouts of the mighty Pete Alonso. Uh, this was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Tuesday night on Josiah Gray. I think he surprised him a lot, just throwing his fastball down for strikes. I mean, throw a lot of first pitch strikes, um, and then he used his, his cutter and slider from that. But um, I think, the, the, honestly, the key that's the key for him is the fastball. You know, we talk about it all the time, fastball in the strike zone, keeping it down, you know, everything else works for him. So, um, what a great, great day, man. I mean, high leverage situation. Uh, Short got a really good hit on Marte. You know, that was awesome. Um, you know, we thought about sending him back out. The inning got long. He had 91 pitches, so I think I thought the right thing to do was to get him out with, with, a, with in a high note. There, there are times when you've kind of gone the other way where you want to test him, maybe with the first couple of batters or the next inning. Is there part of you who just wanted him to kind of take that six and you know leave it at bat? Yeah, and coming into coming into today, knowing you know what, what he's done, he's been uh, his last three starts, he's been 103, 102, 98. Yeah. So I kind of wanted this to be a little lower. And, uh, and like I said, he, he did a great job. And, and that high leverage situation came out at an easier inning in the sixth. And I thought that was good. 
scoreboard seems like maybe a little confused between his cutter and slider, but it said three strikeouts on the slider, two on the fastball, two on the curveball, two on the cutter. So when it's that spread out with his pitches, like what's that to tell you about it? That, that's, I mean, it's, uh, it, just think about it, how hard it is for a hitter to determine what it is as well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, that's what it tells me. Everything is working. Everything was sharp. Um, there, he threw a couple of curveballs at 82, 83 which was kind of what Hickey was talking to him about a little bit, about slowing it down a little bit to, just to get a different slower pitch. Um, and then the cutter was the cutter was awesome, 88, you know, the whole time. So, um, he, like I said, he, he, he pounded the strikes on, which was the key. Yeah, Josiah Gray on Tuesday night pitched like an ace. And what he has done since his bad first start of this regular season has been so encouraging. So we had that 7-1 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on April 1st. Uh, Gray in that game was not good. He allowed five runs in five innings. He gave up three home runs, including a homer to each of the first two batters he faced. But since then, April 6th, one nothing loss at the Colorado Rockies, one run in six innings with six strikeouts. April 11th, a 2-0 loss at the Los Angeles Angels, two runs in five and two-thirds innings. April 18th, a 1-0 loss to the Orioles at Nationals Park, one run in five innings. And now, April 25th, a 5-0 win at the New York Mets, six scoreless innings with nine strikeouts. Josiah Gray, since that hideous first start, has allowed four runs in 22 and two-thirds innings. And he, over those four starts, has allowed just one home run. Gray over his first two major league regular seasons, 2021 and 2022, had a big time home run problem. He gave up a staggering 57 home runs in 219 and a third innings, but he now in this regular season has given up just four home runs in 27 and two-thirds innings, and three of the homers came in that first start. You gotta love what we are seeing from Josiah Gray. And how do you not love what we're seeing from reliever Mason Thompson? You know, this shutout win for the Nats at the Mets on Tuesday night was the work of just two pitchers, Josiah Gray and Mason Thompson. Thompson tossed three scoreless innings for the save as he was great once again. He had four strikeouts versus just one hit, which was a single and no walks. Uh, He threw 28 pitches, 22 strikes, versus just six balls, a strikes-to-balls ratio of nearly 4-1. to one. Uh, Mason Thompson now, this regular season, 18 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 0.96, a whip of 0.59. And consider that volume for a moment, 18 and two-thirds innings. Mason Thompson, as a reliever, has thrown more innings than Chad Cool has as a starter, despite Cool having been in the Nats rotation since opening day. It's not like Cool joined the Nats rotation like two weeks ago. No, Mason Thompson for this regular season has 18 and two-thirds innings. Chad Cool for this regular season has 18 and a third innings. Uh, Mason Thompson is giving the Nats length with these multi-inning relief outings, and he's giving the Nats excellence in these outings. Uh, The Nats' offense on Tuesday night was good. Five runs, 11 hits, six walks. So the Nats went four for 12 with runners in scoring position. Four offensive standouts for the Nats. K-Bit Ruiz, Joey Medesis, Luis Garcia, and Alex Cole. Uh, K-Bit Ruiz was the Nats' starting catcher and number five batter. He got on base four times, three for four with a solo homer. 
Two singles and a walk. Ruiz in the Nats. One run second. A one-out solo homer to right center field. The homer winner projected 414 feet per stat cast. Uh, Ruiz for this regular season now has an on-base percentage of 350. Uh, Joey Manessis as the Nats starting DH and number four batter. Three for five with two RBI singles and another single. Uh, still want to see Manessis sit for power, uh, but he is hitting lately. Uh, just a lot of singles. Uh, Luis Garcia. He was an ad starting second baseman and number two batter. He went just one for five, but the one was a big two-run double. Uh, Garcia in the Nats three-run sixth, a one-out full-count two-run double off the right center field wall for a 4 nothing Nats lead despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And Alex Call as an ad starting left fielder and number one batter got on base four times. He went two for three with two singles and two walks. Call for this regular season now has an on-base percentage of 354. He's number one on the Nats in walks with 13. So really nice win for the Nats at the Mets on Tuesday night. Game two for the Nats at the Mets is on Wednesday night at 7:10. Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats starting pitcher. So we on Tuesday night had a Nats win in a game, but we on Tuesday morning had a Nats win in the Masson dispute. Yes, the Masson dispute, that thing that has been going on for more than a decade, that tedious, ridiculous thing that refuses to end. So a major occurrence in the Masson dispute a while back was the RSDC, the Revenue Sharing Definitions Committee, which was created by Major League Baseball, twice ruling that the Nats in the Masson dispute were owed $296.8 million for 2012 through 2016. The O's slash Masson, because remember, uh, each entity is basically the same thing, right? The O's own the bulk of Masson. The O's slash Masson paid the Nats $197.5 million, but the O's slash Masson still owe the Nats $99.3 million. It was in October 2020 that the New York Supreme Court's appellate division ruled against the O's slash Masson in an appeal, but the O's slash Masson said that they would take the case to the State of New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest court. Well, it wasn't until Tuesday morning (laughs) that we got a decision from the State of New York Court of Appeals. Yes, what we got on Tuesday morning was an appeals decision on something from October 2020. It is late April 2023, in case you do not know. And this decision from Tuesday morning harkened back to something from October 2020. If that doesn't perfectly capture the painful, never-ending nature of the Masson dispute, I don't know what does. But what we got on Tuesday morning was a ruling in favor of the Nats, a win for the Nats. In fact, all six judges ruled in favor of the Nats. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the Masson dispute is over. A, the O slash Masson still could take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, although the U.S. Supreme Court uh, might decide to not even hear the case. Could you imagine the U.S. Supreme Court spending its time on the Masson dispute? But I guess that is possible. Uh, But B, what was at issue in this ruling that we learned of on Tuesday morning was money from 2012 through 2016. We still have to figure out 2017 and beyond. We have a ways to go, people. The Madison dispute has hurt the Nats in a number of ways. First of all, the team has been denied 
hundreds of millions of dollars it should have already received. Now, I'm not sure how much this has impacted the Nats' actual on-field product because the Nats' owners, the learners, to their credit for years, spent money on players. The Nats' Percots baseball contracts ranked in the top 10 in MLB in year-end 40-man payroll in each of eight consecutive seasons, 2013 through 2020. And while you maybe can say that some of the big-name players who the Nats have traded in recent years might still be on the team, if not for the mass in dispute, I would not be so sure of that. Uh, it's more than possible that the money that the Nats have been denied via the mass in dispute is money that simply would have gone to the learners and made the learners richer. And, you know, it's their money to do with as they please. But uh, I wouldn't be so certain that, hey, that's money that would have been spent on, say, outfielder Juan Soto or shortstop Trey Turner. You maybe can say that that would be the case, but you can't be sure that that would be the case. But whatever the case, the Nats have been denied hundreds of billions of dollars that the team should have already received. There's also this. Masson is so run on the cheap. And so Masson, to me, has hurt the Nats and also the O's, by the way, with the way that Masson is run. Uh, Masson does not do all that it could do to grow the Nationals and Orioles fan bases. Masson does not do all that it could do to grow the game of baseball in the Washington, D.C. area. Masson is run on the cheap. Masson basically runs Nationals and Orioles games and pregame and postgame shows. That's it. The rest of the programming is mostly college basketball and college football games, ESPN News, and infomercials. The lack of ancillary programming for both the Nats and the O's on Masson is shameful. But put all of these things to the side. Right now, The number one way that the mass in dispute is hurting the Nats is in holding up the sale of the Nats. What has become very apparent is that the sale of the Nats has stalled thanks to the mass in dispute. Nobody wants to buy the Nats for what the learners want to sell the Nats for without having more certainty in terms of local television revenue. And you don't have that right now with the Nats thanks to the mass in dispute. And so the Nats are stuck in this lame duck ownership situation and are going to be in this situation for who knows how long. Now, I have thought a lot about the mass in dispute, as I'm sure many of you have. And I've thought about, okay, well, what is a realistic way out of this for the Nats? And to me, a realistic way for the Nats out of the mass in dispute is them buying their television rights from the O slash Masson. Because remember, the worst thing about the Masson dispute is the setup of this situation. This ridiculous Masson setup features the O slash Masson having the Nats television rights in perpetuity. Not for 10 years, not for 20 years, in perpetuity, forever. This deal was so dumb on the part of Major League Baseball, which totally caved to the Orioles owner, Peter Angelos. Uh, However, you think about this now. If the O's slash Masson are getting beat up in these court decisions and are having to pay the Nats hundreds of millions of dollars, and, and this may be as important as anything, the regional sports network model, the RSN model, is collapsing largely due to cord cutting. 
then maybe just maybe the cost for the Nats to buy their television rights from the O slash Masson is coming down. Who knows what that cost is? I mean, you got to think that it is a sky high cost, but maybe the cost is starting to come down. And you think about, okay, if the Nats can get themselves someone who is willing to buy the team and buy the television rights from the O slash Masson, then maybe that's the way out of this Masson dispute. You know, this may be a far-fetched scenario. I will grant you that. But you think about what is a possible way out of all of this. That just might be a possible way. That what is happening with RSNs due to the cord cutting, that in conjunction with the Nats' run of legal victories in a Masson dispute, maybe, just maybe, can make this to where new Nats ownership could work out an arrangement by which the new ownership could buy the Nats from the learners and buy the team's television rights from the O's slash Masson. Just something to think about. I know that it has been said that if slash when the Angelos family sells the O's, that that could help to bring an end to the Masson dispute. Maybe, okay, hopefully. But, you know, it's hard to see how and why new Orioles ownership would be itching to get rid of something as valuable as another team's television rights unless, and here's something else to think about, Unless MLB somehow made it so that MLB would not approve any new ownership of the O's unless it agreed to sell the Nats television rights to the Nats. But I don't know how realistic that is. There's a lot to take in with this Masson dispute. Someday, somehow, someway, this Masson dispute has to end, okay? Enough is enough. But for now, hopefully, we are on the path to this thing finally ending. Well, the Orioles' seven-game winning streak is over. An 8-6 loss to the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Canvid Yards on Tuesday evening in Game 2 of a three-game series. The O's fell to 15-8. and eight. Uh, They, in this game, did make things rather interesting. Uh, the O's scored five runs in the bottom of the ninth, trimming an 8-1 deficit to 8-6. Uh, Gunnar Henderson in that Orioles five-run ninth hit a leadoff homer to the Orioles bullpen in left center field. He is the Orioles starting third baseman and number five batter. Went two for four with that solo homer and a single. Uh, You know, Henderson is not off to a good start to this season, but he on Tuesday evening did have a nice game. And then Cedric Mullins, he in that Orioles five-run ninth smashed a one-out grand slam over the right field scoreboard on a one-two pitch. Uh, Mullins, as the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, only went one for five, but the one was that grand slam. So a blowout loss did become a respectable loss, but this still was a loss. Uh, Also homering for the O's on Tuesday evening, by the way, was Jorge Mateo. Boy, has he been good. Uh, Mateo, as the Orioles starting shortstop and number nine batter, one for four with the solo homer. Jorge Mateo now for this regular season has an OPS of 1,049. Uh, But there was bad news for the O's in this game. Uh, Left fielder Austin Hayes left the game due to a bruised right hand, and starter Kyle Bradish got rocked. Uh, This was disappointing. Bradish, seven runs in two and a third innings. He gave up eight hits, a grand slam, a double, and six singles. He issued four walks. He had just one strikeout. Uh, He, over his mere two and a third innings, threw a whopping 81 pitches, 48 strikes, 
versus 33 balls. A Bradish ate a four-run third for the Red Sox, gave up a full-count grand slam to Jaron Duran to center field, uh, despite Duran having been down in the count at one point, one-two. The homer went a projected 409 feet per stat cast. This was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night on Kyle Bradish. You know, just the, I thought early command wasn't wasn't quite there. They did a great job of spoiling a bunch of pitches, putting some balls in play that were off the plate. Um, that the stuff was there. I just didn't think the command was his best tonight. And they a couple of really long innings of forty pitch inning, and um, just had a tough time coming back from that. Yes, he did. Uh, this was just Kyle Bradish's third start this regular season. He was on the 15-day entered list from April 5th, retroactive to April 4th, until April 19th due to a right foot contusion. But he, in his return start, was good. The 4 nothing win at the Nationals last Wednesday night. Bradish, six scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Uh, but he was not good on Tuesday evening. So Kyle Bradish on Tuesday evening, bad. But the Orioles' bullpen on Tuesday evening, good once again. Three Orioles relievers, Mike Bauman, Austin Voth, and CNL Perez, they combined to allow one run in six and two-thirds innings. The Orioles' bullpen has been great so far this season. Game three for the O's against the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday afternoon at 105. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 559, will be a special Commander's NFL Draft preview show with a special guest, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics. Uh, Brian is a true pioneer in the world of football analytics. He's been instrumental in coming up with two tremendous NFL draft tools, ESPN's Draft Day Predictor and ESPN's NFL Draft Simulator. So he's going to tell us what those things tell us about what the commanders will do in the draft. Uh, And Brian has helped to develop or has outright created a number of the advanced stats that have become so common. Uh, ESPN's total QBR, expected points added, or EPA, uh, win rates, win probability, air yards. So we are going to have a lot to get into. Uh, Also, on Thursday's show, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles, and that's on Wednesday night at 7.10 of Game 2, the three-game series at the New York Mets. The O's on Wednesday afternoon at 105 have Game 3 of a three-game series against the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. I'm proud of your boys. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.